Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. One of the things uh, we want to do is really talk about innovation and who's innovating in this space. Um, and so with that, I want to introduce Kelly Nayojihi from Landed. And I've mispronounced her name again. Uh, so, and Kelly is going to talk a little bit about what they are doing uh, to innovate for good. My name is Kelly Nayojahi, and I am employee number 10 for San Francisco-based startup Landed. So Landed helps educators buy, t- buy homes in expensive communities. We, um, we started our company in 2015. Our founders come from a, a range of backgrounds. There's three of them. And they have, we have one founder who has a Canadian uh, background, and so he brings a nice, fresh lens to some of the challenges that we're dealing with here. We have another founder who has parents who are educators, so grew up firsthand understanding the challenges that teachers um, experience, public school teachers. And our third founder is Jesse, and he has a legal background, and so he also brings, um, so the combination of their backgrounds really helps make for a really fresh and um, exciting organization. So the way that our work, and then by the way, all of the photos are actual teachers that we have helped purchase homes in the Bay Area since we started our company. So we partnered with foundations like Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, Santa Cruz Community Foundation, Zoma Foundation, and what they've done is allowed us to pull some funds to support down to support the down payment assistance, which I'll talk about briefly. Um, with this fund, we've been able to work with over 70 school districts here in the Bay Area, in Southern California, uh, Seattle, and Denver. So we help people buy homes, and we do that through our primary vehicle is through our down payment assistance. So um, again, these are real home buyers. And I mentioned this, we uh, launched in the Bay Area in the fall of 2016, in Southern California in 2018, Denver, Seattle. Um, in 2019, we're going to Honolulu. I'm very excited about that. <laughs> uh, also Austin, Portland, uh, Boston and Washington D.C. Um, and 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 I I think that we all understand the challenges in most of these cities is the same. Home prices are extremely um, high, and educator income is not. And so we are a bit of a bridge f- to help uh, a certain demographic, certain folks, be able to buy homes in these communities where where they're serving. We've been able to help 152 educators purchase homes through the down payment assistance. Thank you. (laughs) And we've also been able to reach an additional four to 500 educators through our financial wellness programming. What we discovered was that a fair number of educators would come to us and they weren't in a position to even uh, to have the 10% down that is a part of our program. So, um, the innovation within our organization, which I really appreciated, was, you know, that's a lot of people who we can't help, but what can we do to help them? So we um, actually launched our financial coaching this year. I went through the process of becoming a certified financial coach. So people actually get to talk to me for 30 minutes. I help them set financial goals. I help them create budgets and figure out spending plans so that they can buy with Landed or not just to improve their financial condition. Okay, so here's how our down payment support works. Oh, no, that's not what I'm going to talk about. I'm going to talk about... 
As I mentioned, we have our down payment support. We can do up to 10%, and we have the financial coaching. Sometimes people come to us, they don't want to buy with Landed. They don't want to use the down payment assistance, so we will connect them with um, a, a group of lenders or a group of agents who can still support their, their, their um, support them on their journey. All right, so here's how the down payment assistance works. So let's talk about a, a fictitious $500,000 home somewhere. <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> right, it's a studio, right? <laughs> so we try, we, what, our goal is to put our educators in traditional funding um, programs. So we, they'll bring 10%. We'll match their 10% so they can put down 20%. And have an eight, have a mortgage that's eighty percent of the home value. Maybe like Denver is where you might find this. Actually, even under under five hundred in Denver. All right. So the power of the twenty percent down, of course, is that you're going to have a smaller mortgage. You don't have to pay the PMI insurance. And interestingly enough, when you have these competitive situations, we've had a lot of landed landed. Um, home buyers who are able to win not because their price was the best, but because they had a great story and because of their support with Landed. So that's actually been really rewarding to see that um, their offers be more competitive in more ways than one. All right, so it's a shared investment. There's no monthly payments, and it's not a loan. They're not paying each month, so it doesn't change uh, what they're paying each month. The way that it works is that in the future, they either purchase, they sell the home, they might refinance, they might decide to buy landed out, or they just wait till the end of the 30 years. And at that point, landed will, will share in the appreciation, so they would return to us their initial investment plus 25% of the appreciation. And if the home value goes down, we would deduct 25% of the depreciation from that initial investment as well. So it's really, we're sharing alongside with them. All right, and the, and the home buyer decides when to exit the partnership. They, and then repay the landed fund, and then we're able to fund other home buyers and other educators who come through and are interested in making a purchase. All right, so we also have a landed agent network, um, and they are vetted, they're high performing, and they really, uh, work closely. They're really great at helping people find homes that work for them, and they, they can wiggle into some interesting places, and it's just amazing and fascinating. Every educator always says, I never thought this was gonna work. So this is more of our home buyers. Again, we've worked with 150 folks, 152, and we've reached Three to four hundred folks at our special events. This is one of the quotes from our buyers that landed provided a ton of support and made the process feel less intimidating. We actually hold their hands throughout the entire process. Our customer team works really closely and walks you through. And again, the, the education piece is really important. Um, people first is one of the values internally as well as externally. So it's really just an a, amazing place to work, particularly watching home buyers have things happen that they really did not think could happen. And then internally, when we were able to say, what can we do? And then being able to say, hey, I want to do financial coaching and having that be something of value to our customers. And the other benefits where there's no fees, the partner real estate agents actually share in, they gave us a referral fee. So that's where the um, our income comes from. And we have participating lenders. And then we do extensive home buying education as well. And that's me. Um, we also have some resources. We do events. We were in Denver last month. We were in Redondo Beach on Tuesday. We do um, like wellness fairs where we invite people to come and learn about the home buying journey. And that's where we're really able to reach a lot of folks. Um, so you can visit, find us at landed.com, Instagram and Twitter at Landed Homes. And that's it. <laughs>
Awesome. Thank you, Kelly. All right. So Kelly's going to be around, but we're going to keep rolling. I think it's just really interesting to look at innovators in this space of social capital and how we build community in ways that harness markets. So without further ado, let me introduce our panel. If I could have uh, Nick Hodges come up, who will be moderating our panel. And I'm, I'm going to let you, Nick, introduce who your own speakers, who are our illustrious speakers for a panel that's focused on uh, philanthropy and this idea of, uh, of community and, or, and cross-sector partnerships. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for allowing us to be here. Uh, my name is Nick Hodges, and I'm the Chief Operating Officer of Rockefeller Philanthropy Advisors. We are a global uh, consulting firm, and uh, I am also a proud USF alum. Uh, <laughs> and I have the great pleasure of uh, moderating a panel of uh, experts in the field of philanthropy, nonprofit, uh, and uh, impact investing uh, to talk about uh, innovation in this space and in particularly how uh, public and private uh, can meet together uh, to find great solutions. So I'd like to uh, bring Kim Wright-Vielich uh, to the stage. Uh, Kim is the co-founder and managing director of Tideline, uh, also a global consulting firm uh, focused on helping uh, clients realize both financial and societal value. And she was formerly the CEO of the Schwab Charitable Fund, where I was privileged to work with her, and grew it from a startup to one of the largest donor-advised funds in the world. Uh, I would also like to bring to the stage uh, a good colleague and friend, uh, Daryl Collins, who is Managing Director and CFO of Bankable Frontiers. Um, Dr. Collins is uh, co-author of Portfolios of the Poor, deeply knowledgeable on financial behaviors of the poor and works globally, primarily in emerging markets, uh, with banks and financial institutions on how to be uh, inclusive and build products uh, that serve the poor. Uh, I would also like to ask uh, a new friend, uh, Maya Perkins, uh, to the stage. Uh, she is head of strategic initiatives at Facebook, um, focused on transportation, housing, and economic development. And uh, prior to Facebook, uh, she was executive director of Bay Area Forward, uh, a funder collaborative in Silicon Valley um, uh, fostering uh, inclusive communities. And lastly, uh, another new friend, uh, Maurice Jones, uh, the president and CEO of LISC. And uh, uh, prior to LISC, uh, Maurice was also secretary of commerce for his home state of Virginia and also served as uh, Deputy Secretary of the U.S. Housing and Urban Development. So please uh, give a round of applause for our panelists. So I wanted to uh, start us off by perhaps each one of you um, speaking about your own experiences and how they relate uh, to Innovate for Good. Um, I think philanthropy has uh, a dual reputation of, of doing good, but it also doesn't have a reputation for being innovative when, in fact, uh, it's a highly innovative space um, with its own ivory tower. I think uh, Therese called it uh, silos of ex uh, uh, cylinders of excellence. I, I will never forget that. Um, but uh, we work deeply in forging partnerships uh, that actually bring private public 
uh, and philanthropy together uh, to solve solutions. And every person on this uh, panel has a unique perspective around that. Uh, perhaps, uh, Maurice, if we could start with you and uh, talk about some of your experiences. And uh, once we do that, we will uh, uh, have a few questions and then open it up for discussion. So you want me to start personally or with LISC? Uh, both. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me uh, quickly on it. First of all, nice to be with you all, and thank you for having me. So uh, good afternoon. Look, on a personal level, philanthropy has changed my life. Um, I um, was born in a little town of 1,200 people in a little place called Kenbridge, Virginia. Who, who knows what Kenbridge is? You know what Kenbridge is? Boy, I got to check this guy out. Um, I was a tobacco farmer for the first 25 years of my life. I was raised by grandparents. Uh, my grandfather went to school for six years in a barn. Uh, my grandmother went to school for 11 years at the colored technical school in town. Uh, they could not go further because of their race, pure and simple. Um, yet when I came along, I got a full scholarship to a local college that changed my life. That was philanthropy. That was philanthropy. So philanthropy um, for me, without it, uh, I certainly wouldn't be sitting here uh, in front of you. And there are other stories to tell, but I know personally that philanthropy can change a life because it certainly changed mine. So my hat's off uh, to philanthropy. Um, I work for an organization that's been around for 40 years, uh, LISC, uh, and we are a development finance organization. We provide access to capital to low and moderate income areas all over the country to build affordable housing, to build recreation facilities for youth, uh, healthcare centers, uh, workforce development. It's small business lending. It's comprehensive community development. Uh, we have a huge uh, partnership here with Facebook. We have a huge partnership uh, with the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative and some others around trying to address this incredible issue you have here about around affordable housing. Well, we've invested... $60 billion in the projects that we've worked on in the 40 years, 60% of that has come from philanthropy. I'll talk to you more about that, but we know that without philanthropy, this country, with all of our imperfections, would be much more imperfect. Um, the question is how you continue to utilize philanthropy in the 21st century to stay relevant. And hopefully we can talk about that this afternoon. So those would be my experiences. Hopefully that, that's helpful. Brilliant. Thank you. Good. Good Maya. afternoon. Hi. Um, so I will also start with the personal. And um, philanthropy has also been really instrumental in my life. Um, I grew up in East Palo Alto, California, and mostly went to private schools. 
Um, and my family was able to afford them one through scholarships. Um, and then also through like friends, we had a, um, a neighbor, um, of ours in East Palo Alto who was an older woman and she just seemed so old. And now I realize she's probably about 60. <laughs> it's not old. <laughs> um, and, um, but she would, she would help us, um, help my parents pay our school fees, um, our tuition. And so my dad was a community college professor. My mom was a local community activist and community builder. Um, and even with the scholarship, it was hard to afford our private schools. And so, um, her, this, older woman, um, older woman helped us, um, go to school. And, um, and that has been my experience throughout my education, um, of being able to have assistance. Um, so I'm very grateful for that. Um, now I work at Facebook and, uh, so many folks have thought, oh, that's so different. And I'm like, yeah, it's different because it's on a huge scale of wonderful things we can do, um, which has been pretty amazing to be able to work for a corporation who is really committed to collaboration and, um, and social good and, um, and social mobility. And so I work on a team that is very focused on social mobility. And as Maurice said, um, Facebook has partnered with LISC and others to, um, advance housing in the region, um, and really help improve the lives of, um, of a lot of people so that, uh, they can have stories like many of us of coming from families that maybe couldn't afford, um, couldn't afford a lot of things and, um, but now are in stable jobs and, and able to, um, to live in stability and, and have the opportunity to give back. Okay. Well, I'm Daryl Collins and, um, I, uh, have managed and grown a global consulting company for profit consulting company, but stretching a bit further back, how did I get into sort of the realm of what we would call social business? Um, and once upon a time I was working on wall street and decided to, uh, really, I was working on emerging markets. I decided to go to South Africa and become a portfolio manager. And while I was in South Africa, I decided that working on the portfolios of the rich was actually really boring. And so to be honest, and I decided to focus on the portfolios of the poor and did a research study around South Africa tracking exactly how the low-income households um, manage their money, every cash flow in, every expenditure out, but then all the informal financial instruments they used, all the um, trying to hold money back, all the savings group that groups that they participated in. And I wrote a book called, literally, Portfolios of the Poor. And that's been my baseline ever since. Now, BFA um, focuses on financial inclusion, in emerging markets purely, we've done, I've helped run this financial diaries study in the U.S. You might have, uh, be aware of financial diaries, a book called financial diaries, um, by Jonathan Mordock and Rachel Snyder of CFSI. Um, and interestingly, what we found, what they found, uh, and with some assistance, 
um, from BFA is that, you know, low-income people in the U.S., actually there aren't a lot of differences in how they manage their money compared to people in Mexico, Kenya, and India. There's a lot of similarities. What we do as BFA is we work in partnership with um, a number of donors. Our clients are donors, and with the help of our PA, um, we often manage big projects, multi-year, multi-million dollars, and we work with financial institutions of different types. We've worked with big, huge banks like Standard Bank in South Africa or ICICI in India, and we help to, in that situation, encourage them to offer savings products to low-income people. We've worked with microfinance institutions to help build their skills to better offer financial products to low-income people. And we worked with startups across the globe who would be focused on financial inclusion of some type to help them get going and get to the next stage of their evolution. So let me stop there. Thank you. I'm Kim Wright-Village, um, and I thank you all for having us as well. And I, I want to commend USF for organizing an event around this topic. It's incredibly timely. Um, you, if you're in the field, you know that the global um, Impact Investors Network just published their estimate of the impact investing market. And just to be clear, impact investing is not screens. It's not the which, taking out the quote-unquote sin stocks. It's not necessarily taking into account environmental, social, and governance factors in doing your due diligence on your investments. It's actually investments that are aimed at catalyzing or driving social and environmental change. And that market is now estimated at about $500 billion. And if you think about that in the context of philanthropy, which is about $800 billion in private foundations in this country, that's a very significant market. And today, it's an estimated that 24% of all public invested assets are screened in some way. You know, let that, let that settle in. There should be two responses to that. One, it's huge, and two, is it authentic? Right? Um, so I got into this industry, uh, so to speak, if you want to call it an industry, um, because I had been in conventional markets and in financial services and had taken some time off to be with my children. And when I went back... I said, I want to have the sense of urgency and accountability of the private sector and the mission-driven aspects of the social sector. And I went looking for a job that created that, and Schwab was launching their donor-advised fund, and that's where I landed. And then over the course of building that with Nick, um, we got to about $5 billion in contributed assets and um, we were granting a lot. Donor advised funds grant a lot more than foundations. They grant between 20 and 25%. But you still have these assets waiting to be granted. And we were trying to figure out ways to deploy the assets while they were waiting to be granted. And so we, we launched the first in a donor advised fund guarantee fund, which when we get to the blended finance part of the our dialogue, we can talk a little bit about that. 
But that experience, the experience of growing a donor advice fund, which is nothing more than a financial services product oriented on philanthropy, gave me a view into the power of the private markets and how fast they can scale and how quickly they can move things. Because you can't build a nonprofit to five, ten billion, twenty billion dollars in a decade normally. So that really began my shift to impact investing. And then I tried to teach it at Haas Business School for two semesters. <laughs> It was one of those situations where you're reading one chapter ahead of your MBA students. <laughs> and I would be a much better professor today than I was then. Um, and then I launched a Tideline. And if you want to remember Tideline's name, think of it as the line between the social returns and financial returns. And Tideline's a strategy consulting firm, sort of like a McKinsey, but focused almost exclusively on impact investing. And we advise big institutional investors like the Gates Foundation, Ford Foundation, Rockefeller Foundation. We've advised 30% of the largest foundations in the country. We also advise CDFIs. I'll be, I'll be bending Maurice's arm afterwards. And we advise um, large institutions that are trying to figure this out. The Fidelities, Franklin Templeton's, UBS's, Morgan Stanley's. And they're looking at what's happening. They're looking at the surveys of people that are interested in doing this and saying, how do we respond to this? What's in our portfolio? How do we do it with some authenticity? And they may be motivated by their brand protection rather than the impact, but they don't want to be caught being inauthentic and have it hurt them. So as a consequence, that creates a lot of work for us. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I wanted to uh, start with one question that we, we've spoken about, and, and Kim alluded to blended finance. Uh, we've spoken about the money that philanthropy funds and, and generates, but it's it's a micro dot of the private markets, right? So, you know, what is the role of philanthropy in spurring private investment? Um, when we looked at when the SDGs uh, were launched and and they estimated what it would take to fund the SDGs, uh, it runs over four trillion dollars annually. So, government. Philanthropy could never do that. It has to be unlocked in the private markets. But philanthropy can play a very interesting role going in first, right, to play a role of a loss leader um, or to build infrastructure um, or to spur competition um, that will actually bring funding to the space. So what I'd like to ask the panel is, uh, as we've become more complex and more creative, um, what do we think the role of blended capital um, is playing in an ever more evolving uh, ecosystem. Each one of you represents a different perspective in the space. Would love to understand if you have an example of where it's making a difference or from a different perspective, talk about what you think the needs are uh, in order for these collaborations to be effective. If anyone has a first word, great. Uh, I'll, I'll start off. Um, Blended capital is really the primary way that we're going to truly achieve um, social innovation at scale. Uh, so let me give you an example. <clears throat> we here in the Bay Area 
are uh, in the midst now of putting together a $500 million uh, loan fund for housing for people who are from 30% of area median income up to 150%. Um, I joke all the time, $500 million uh, in the Bay Area gets you two units of housing. But, you know, <laughs> but that's a sign. That is a joke. That is a joke. You can you can laugh. You can laugh. <laughs> okay, three, to be generous. Um, to, to serve that spectrum of um, income earners, you have to be able to um, have products that are um, competitively or below market enough to make the economics work to develop the housing or to preserve the housing or to protect the housing, which means you need a capital stack. You need a stack that has at its base philanthropic dollars. Those philanthropic dollars may be the dollars that you need to serve as the loan loss reserve for the loans that you're going to be providing to developers to preserve or to uh, produce. Those philanthropic dollars may be the dollars that you need in order to um, actually develop the right products for certain segments of the population. Those philanthropic dollars are the dollars that you need in order to blend the interest rate low enough to serve a segment of the market that's not already been served. You cannot do this without philanthropic dollars. You cannot do it with just um, market-based dollars or loan dollars from traditional financial institutions. Otherwise, we wouldn't be where we are now. It would already make sense. And so... What you find in funds that you need to do work that, that brings both a social return and a financial return, you need a layer of philanthropic dollars. We always say that you need 20% at least of the capital stack for social good work to be 0% interest, namely philanthropic, in order for the stack to work. You need dollars that are willing to take risk, that are willing to mitigate other risk in order to attract the private sector in. I could go on, but you get the point. So that $500 million fund that we're doing here in the Bay Area would not have been possible but for Chan Zuckerberg stepping up and offering a $40 million grant. That was the seed that brought everybody else to the table. That $40 million grant now is the loan loss reserve for everybody else that's putting in debt capital. We have a hundred plus examples like that all around the country. We put together a fund that is designed to do mixed income or mixed use development largely along transit lines. And what we were aiming for was along transit lines to build supportive housing, permanent supportive housing for homeless, 
um, healthcare centers and commercial real estate, all in the same facility along a transit line. To do it, to make it work, we had to get philanthropic capital, we had to use tax credits, and we had to get debt. The first place, though, where we had to go first in order to attract all the rest was the philanthropic capital. So it is hard to overstate how important it is to have, first of all, a blended stack of capital to do the kind of work that we're talking about in order to produce social and financial return. It is also hard to overstate how important it is for that philanthropic capital to be the first in. When it's the first in, they will come. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. I also think an important piece um, to add on to what Maurice said is the blended capital is is vital, and so are the blended voices. And so when you look at philanthropy, they are going to come with a voice, and that voice can be the catalyst to bring in others, but each sector at the table is going to have its own input and its own layer. And so when bringing together a, a fund or a partnership or a collaboration, it's important to honor and listen to each of the voices and understand that each entity is going to have a, a certain need um, and, and need to get a certain type of return. Um, at Facebook, we have really, as I mentioned, focused on social mobility. And so that is a huge part of what we do. And housing is a really big piece of that. And so we want to be a part of something that has a broad AMI so that people can come in at various levels of, you know, the housing ladder or the social mobility ladder and, and that it's broad enough that it really responds to the needs of our region. And right now the housing crisis that we're dealing with is so broad that it takes a lot of partners and, and a range of, of AMI levels to actually impact the crisis. Um, and, and each partner needs to be able to get, um, what they want out of it. Um, and, and I think being able to, to invite the, the collaboration to the table, um, in a way that is, um, that is open and that assumes good intent is, um, is, is really vital. That is a, a sort of like a cultural saying at Facebook, um, assume good intent. And, and I think that when you're bringing in people from a lot of different places, it's, it's a great place to start. Yes. You know why I want to go next is because I'm going to be the voice of doom <laughs> and I want you to bring us back up. So, 
ahead. So I'm sitting here talking, listening to Maurice, and I'm getting more and more depressed because um, it sounds like it works. And most things in international development, I got to say, it doesn't work. You got to be ready to just blow money and know that it's not going to work. You remind me so much of the structures that people try to put around agriculture, for example, or agricultural lending. And it just, the, the field of international development is just littered with stuff that doesn't work, which doesn't help the stuff that does work to flourish, really. You got to have something of a rising of the phoenix. So, and it's so scattered. So, uh, let me think about things that have worked. Here's a really good example in financial inclusion. Um, totally private uh, effort from um, Safaricom in Kenya, who introduced M-Pesa, which is a phone-to-phone way of transferring money. Now, Tavneet Surrey and Billy Jack from MIT in Georgetown um, came out with a study that said, wow, this this little bloody, you know, money transfer service helps people get out of poverty. Teeny, 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 tiny number of very, 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 very poor Kenyans. Nonetheless, it actually made a difference. That was pure corporate pure corporate, no philanthropy, um, pure government, the Adar system in India, which gave everybody a digital ID, and then it's kind of opened up a whole bunch of financial changes. There are pros and cons with Adar and digital ID and the government being so muscular, uh, but pure government, not a lot of social funding. One of the challenges is that um, you're talking about places with weak states, so, and the rule of law is a little iffy. So if you're talking about trying to enforce contracts, it's really difficult. So doing some sort of, you know, guaranteed interest rate or guaranteed uh, payment or what have you, it's really difficult from the top down from this philanthropy, uh, philanthropic plus, you know, the blended finance approach. What, what we've tried to do in my company with donors is equally scattered. So, for example, when we worked with large financial institutions to help prompt them to focus on the bottom of the pyramid of their market, so to speak, that was a $10 million project from the Gates Foundation. Uh, it was a couple of years ago. It was pretty experimental. The whole crux of that project was, I mean, these are large banks. These are large publicly listed banks. They're very wealthy, right? They serve corporates. Top that they've got plenty of money, but the grants and the technical assistance was supposed to crowd in um, sort of a greater dedication to the bottom of the pyramid. They didn't care about the money. Um, those who were a bit more successful cared about the prestige of being attached to something that the Gates Foundation was supporting and that big banks around the world were about. And the people who were most successful were the ones who just made it into a total corporate spin to make sure that they could secure something like marketing dollars. But I must say, when I look back on that project, $10 million out the window, in my opinion, because now, of those five banks, only one 
continues to have a financial inclusion department. Those are market dynamics. We have better luck with smaller cooperatives and microfinance institutions who are not made of money. They're still profitable because that's the name of the game because they have to be sustainable. But they desperately needed that technical assistance. Again, it really wasn't so much about the money. It was about the peer learning between them. It was about focusing the mind. Um, I like to say it was partially about us and the technical assistance, but we found that with that institution, we could much move much further, much faster. Nowadays, the nowadays, there's much more of an emphasis on impact investing in startups across, you know, the global south. Um, and we run a fund through our PA, which is a TA fund, not an investment fund, where uh, impact investors put forward companies that they're interested in, and they're they're not yet ready even for seed funding, and we try to take them to the next level. Now, we tend to, the CEOs of these companies really tend to like what we do for them. But we kind of wonder how much it's really impacting the poor versus something that's a really cool idea. I think the biggest thing, again, I think the biggest thing, it's not about the money, although these guys really need the funds. I think what really tilts, moves the needle is having somebody from the impact fund sitting on that board and keeping their nose to the grindstone in terms of their mission. Um, I had someone from Women's World Banking who has, who's an NGO, focuses on women's financial inclusion globally, and they do have an impact fund. And she recently said to me, she's like, man, there is, I think the biggest impact that we have is when we have our investment advisors sit on the boards. And that's where we have impact. And I thought that was a pretty interesting observation. So let me stop there. Maybe quite, not quite so gloomy, but Kim's going to be a lot less gloomy. Oh, yeah. She puts the pressure on me. And, and then I think Maurice is probably chomping at the bit to be able to articulate that it works. So um, I, I, I want to, on Tideline's website, we just published a piece in less than a month ago, I think, called Catalytic Capital. And it was funded by the MacArthur Foundation, and it's all about this topic. It's about how do you use philanthropy in the capital stack or to catalyze private sector investment what are the what are the what are the things that it does and Maurice touched on some of them but one of the things that he did not touch on that sort of addresses what Daryl was talking about which is accountability philanthropy can play a role in accountability um, they they can they can play a role in um, creating transparency um, which is connected with accountability. Um, and then there, it also, the paper also touches on the risks of crowding out convention, distorting a market, crowding out conventional investments. Uh, I, <laughs> after the horrific great recession that we had in 2008 and 9, I remember somebody articulating the theory that the CDFI and the you know, the CRA legislation was the source of this, which is just absolutely absurd. But it did give, for a short period of time between, before the real scholarship kicked in, a scapegoat um, for what was happening on Wall Street. The, the point is, is that 
all philanthropy has unintended consequences occasionally. Philanthropy often fails, but not any more than venture capital, which is if you get two out of ten, you're thrilled. And when people say to me, capital stacked money or guaranteed money or concessionary money or catalytic money from philanthropy distorts a market because they become dependent on this cheap capital. I don't know how long it's going to take Tesla to be profitable, but I can tell you it would be very unusual for a social enterprise to last 12 years without profitability. So, so I, I do think you have to be aware of these distortions and they're going to be unintended consequences. Um, and there's no question that there's going to be failures. But there is an incredibly effective role for philanthropy around transparency and accountability to try and address some of this. Was that optimistic enough? That, <laughs> definitely. Well, and I want to add, when I, I, there's a number of questions that we've got. I've tried to. We've only got time for one, so I'm trying to, to sort of create a theme with it. But for some context, you know, the one of the West's most significant exports before the 20th century was colonialism. So we built and invested in structures that purposely leave people out. And now philanthropic and private capital is going in to sometimes mitigate or, or, or fix uh, those systems, and in some cases uh, coming in and building new systems. Uh, it's fraught with risk. Uh, an impact investor who's doing real impact investing has to have a risk profile of a venture capitalist, right? It is, um, and because you're adding the complexity of, of also measuring social return. Um, but looking at those complexities and looking at the different roles that come in, I would really appreciate um, some perspectives on how we, with our different perspectives, um, manage those risks um, to uh, get a successful conclusion, outcome. <laughs> Let me make sure I, I'm with you. Yeah. Um, Manage risk. Sorry, looking at um, the risk of not doing good. Oh, and adding the complexity of having different types of funders working together. Yes. Um, what are, what 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 might you might need from your perspective to make it a successful collaborative? Yes. Okay. So um, uh, we're in an academic setting. I think it was uh, Yates who wrote a poem in the fifties. Courses from the rock, and the. And I'm going to get there. I promise. Uh, <laughs> he's lamenting that he thinks people are turning away from God in the church. But he has this line or a couple of lines where he he says uh, that um, he's talking about us. He says they, when they try to escape the real world, they go. Dreaming of systems so perfect that no one will ever need to be good. In this country, we have a system that at one and the same time is producing the lowest unemployment rate that we've had since 1969 and in 9,000 plus census tracts an unemployment rate that's over 15%. In this country, we have 
this incredible, we're sitting in one that we have this incredible higher education system that helps people completely transform their lives while people who are coming out of prison are fighting to find a way to get employed. In this country, right here, if you drive 10 minutes in a circle, you will pass through census tracts that have a 69-year life expectancy and an 86-year life expectancy. We have a system that none of us can dream, afford to a dream is so perfect that you don't need to do good. That's where philanthropy comes in. We need people who want to do good to work alongside everybody else. If you don't have that in all the work we're trying to do, we're going to fall short of what this experiment called America is aspiring to be. We need people who just want to do good, period. That's where philanthropy comes in. Can we uh, enable and put vehicles around to make sure that the philanthropic seeker and the uh, market seeker and the below market seeker can work together? Absolutely. We do it every day. We do it every day. And in fact, that market seeker is happy that that below market seeker is in there. Right. That's almost like a guarantee. What we have to do is to make sure that we set up structures for these different, arguably different motivated or complicated in their motivations. Actors are at the table, are helping to make the decisions, are feeling empowered and understand where they're coming from. But that's not the hard piece. That's not the hard piece at all. Um, the real hard piece is finding more and more folks who want to go to those places that I just described and who want to stay there long enough to make a difference. It's the patience that we are missing the most. And so what I think helps people actually um, endure or helps us create the stamina that we're going to need to work in these communities where perhaps 50% of the population are reentering is patient capital and a high functioning team around it. You got to have philanthropy for that. So come join the party. That's what I would say. <laughs> Thank you. And I would say that, listening to the voices of the people in the community. And I think that that helps address the issue of colonialism. And so we um, at Facebook are very informed by our community members. We talk to community members. We talk to the activists. We talk to folks with lived experience. A lot of the lived experience folks are also on our team. Um, and so it's a matter of, listening to what people need and then co-creating something together. And so our teacher housing program was in response to the needs of teachers. 
our um, housing um, fund for a significant amount that's going to people with an AMI of 30% and below that was co-created with community members. The um, Partnership for the Bay's Future, that was co-created with community members. And so all of these things, it's not a we will help you and tell you what you need. It is tell us what you need. How can we do it together? And a lot of these things are actually in our corporate interests because our employees, a lot of them cannot afford to live close to campus. Um, and a lot of our employees want to live in diverse neighborhoods and they don't want to feel as if they are somehow, um, uh, causing, um, discomfort or, um, or problems for their neighbors. Um, so it is a, a shared interest. Um, I think of philanthropy. I know of, of Facebook and corporations, um, to work with people and, and to also, as was said, take that risk. And I guess I don't see it as like a huge failure. And so if we do something, and people say, look, we want this. And we're like, okay, let's create it. And we create it. And we're like, oh, that didn't work. <laughs> well, but we learned something. And then we go on to the next thing. And we're like, well, what is going to work? But I think as long as it's a collaboration, we're in a, a really, really good space um, to make positive change. Thank you. I think I forget the question. Risk. Oh. Risk. 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 Here's the... I mean, I have mentioned that I feel uh, so private companies in developing markets and especially in financial inclusion, because remember, this is banks and lenders and uh, payment companies. And, you know, they're by nature for profit companies. Um, A lot of the change is really coming from private industry in low income markets. Now, how do you get – so I want to notice that. And I want to notice also that the income disparity in a lot of developing countries is massive, which means that there are a lot of rich people um, right at the top of the, of the pyramid. One of the most interesting notions that I think is coming about in my industry is how do you crowd in – that local capital and that sort of that sort of uh, local people who have gotten very wealthy on sort of the way that these markets are formed. How do you crowd that in? How do you keep it from just simply going into U.S. stocks? Um, because there is an, an interest in building up the country. There is a sense of nationalism, but. Um, one of the challenges is if they take a chance and they provide some funding to one of these private companies that happens to be a startup that is going to work and serve the large corporations, there's very little chance of an exit, right? There's very there's almost no chance of an IPO, and there's only so many companies in that small market that you could sell to as an exit. And so one of the things that um, the CDC 
which is fully funded by uh, the UK government. It's an impact investor. One of the things that they've become interested in is how do we get that local capital under some sort of, we take a stake in some sort of instrument that can pull in and crowd in that local capital. Do we then develop capital markets that make it easier to get out of that investment? So in other words, they're working at not, they're working at the beginning of the funding of the company, but they're also working at the end and trying to crowd in the wealthy money that is in Nigeria and Kenya and India and Brazil. Um, and I think that that's a very, very interesting notion. And that's a, yet another place where philanthropy, if it can be, if it can just simply go first with a wealthy, um, the wealthy individuals, that may be a very tractable moment. And then the other thing, to Kim's point, okay, is just simply the tracking of does this make a difference, which I think is important. Sorry, Kim. Please. Okay. I guess I'm going to say something about risks. Um, I'll just say two quick things. One is these issues are incredibly complex. Uh, they're more complex than traditional investing. <laughs> They're, they're more complex than creating wealth. And it's very, very hard to create wealth. It's very hard to make a company successful under the best circumstances. And I'll just give two quick anecdotes to capture the complexity. The um, UN Educational Commission is trying to create a facility to fund international education in the developing world. Um, they're trying to get donor countries to provide guarantees or cheaper debt um, through the World Bank and other facilities. And if they provide cheaper debt to the developing countries, they'll theoretically increase their educational spending. But that sounds pretty straightforward. It's not even begin to be straightforward because if you're a, a developing world, any government, wherever you are on the planet, and somebody's giving you cheap capital to do one thing, the money that you would have spent on that, you go spend on something else. So how do you make sure that the pie that's going to education actually increases? Two, the quality of education that's being delivered in the developing world is so subpar that kids get out of secondary school and they're not employable, they can't read, they can't do math. So how do you make sure that increasing the budget really results in increased learning? Um, so these are just incredibly complex issues. And in terms of Daryl's comment about local money crowding in and developing markets, a lot of markets have regulation against their pension funds develop, investing in their own markets. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and part of that is currency risk, right. right, which is a reasonable risk to manage to, but so, so re there are sometimes regulatory ob uh, obstacles to these things. Anyway, the point is, is that it takes people like you that care about it, that want to invest with, that want to invest the time and the rigor and the intellectual horsepower in thinking about it in nuanced ways and in not superficial ways. That's what will get you there. Complex problems require complex solutions. They're bound to be errors. You have to be patient. You have to have. You have to stay for the long haul, and you have to tolerate. Um, and you really have to be rigorous and nuanced in your thinking about it. 
Thank you. Thank you oh. so much. Thank you all. Give them a big, big round of applause.